If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Ferrari. And I'm Andrea Dresch. We're two political reporters in D.C. who are going to do something radically different on our podcast. We're not going to obsess about Donald Trump. That's right. Here at McClatchy, we have eyes and ears on the ground in 30 newsrooms across the country, keeping the pulse on the voters who will decide this fall's midterm elections, as well as the presidential contest in two years. Today, we're calling on one of our colleagues in the Miami Herald newsroom to talk about the big Florida and shakeup last week, where Democrat Andrew Gillum won the Democratic primary over a cadre of better-funded opponents. David Smiley is a reporter at the Miami Herald. He'll break down Gillum's victory in the equally unexpected rise of Republican Congressman Ron DeSantis. Return of Ron DeSantis for these circles. The unexpected for both of us, I think. Then we've got Aussie reporter Nick Foriezos, who will join the show to talk about his latest story on candidates and their overwhelming debt. All right. You ready? Let's do it. So last week, I think we had maybe one of the most remarkable outcomes of the primary season so far in 2018 in Florida, of all places. One of our favorite states to, to talk about, of course. The gubernatorial primaries there, two very interesting results. On the Democratic side, a huge shock. Andrew Gillum, the progressive mayor of Tallahassee, won a race that I don't think anybody saw coming. And on the, the Republican side, Ron DeSantis, who's effectively a, a Trump acolyte, won and, and a victory that a year ago, at least, would have surprised a lot of people. Uh, he defeated Adam Putnam, who was the very well-funded, seemingly establishment-backed candidate who faded dramatically down the stretch and has set up this race in Florida. And this is why we wanted to bring on David Smiley from the Miami Herald. This race that really sets up a very sharp contrast between two competing views of the country, two candidates who really represent their party's respective bases right now. Uh, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Set it up for our listeners here. I mean, you really have a very big contrast between a sort of Sanders-style Gillum and a very much a Trump-style DeSantis. How, how does it break out? Yeah. And Andrew Gillum, uh, who brought Bernie Sanders to Florida in the last weeks of the campaign, you have a unabashed progressive who talked about supporting Medicare for all. He, he says if he's governor, he'll put it on the ballot in Florida in 2020, wants to end private prisons, wants to raise the corporate tax rate to close to 8 percent in order to create a, a billion more dollars to raise teachers' salaries, campaigned really hard on on the idea that Democrats should not run to the center in a Florida midterm election where the party has, over the last 20 years, looked to moderate candidates to try to carry a purple state. And then on the other side, you have DeSantis, who is part of the Freedom Caucus, a conservative congressman who is an ardent Trump supporter and relied on President Trump and his popularity in the party to really carry him to victory with less money and less name recognition than than Adam Putnam. Gillum's victory was a shock, right? I mean, was there anyone in the Democrat, even in the Democratic Party in Florida, who thought he was going to win this thing? Well, his campaign certainly thought they were going to win. I, I thought they were just repeating that he was surging enough, you know, hoping. Well, if we say it enough times, 
the media will start to say it and, and maybe it'll actually happen. But some polls actually did show him very late in the game doing well and picking up votes. He appears to have done really well on Election Day and in the last weekend of early voting. So there were some signs, but largely this was a stunning upset for a candidate that I really thought we would be talking after the election about maybe if he had more money, he might have been able to win. And he pulled an upset and now it doesn't seem like he has anything to worry about in terms of money. They're throwing it at him right now. On the national scale, should we be surprised that Florida is where progressives notched their their big upset? This is the state where national Democrats had to spend some money to stop a progressive candidate in their Senate race last time. It seems to have maintained a really strong progressive movement that has been challenging authority for a while there and, and like kicking at this. Well, you know, I mean, uh, the interesting thing, you know, in Florida, like I mentioned earlier, is that the state, while it's a purple state in presidential elections, is pretty reliably Republican in the midterms. And that's why voters have gone to candidates like Alex Sink in 2010 or, you know, even Charlie Crist, who was a Republican governor in the state. And then the party, after bashing him for so many years, turned around and supported him because Democrats in Florida have tended to believe that they need to have a moderate candidate on the ballot. So I, I do think in the sense that electing Gillum it does appear to be a change for the party in Florida in the sense of they're now offering voters a clear decision on the left and, and the right, and they're forcing people in the middle to choose which way to go. That seems like almost the epitome of what we've learned about Republican primaries this cycle. This is somebody who ran two years ago with the help of conservative groups that now say that their issues aren't moving the needle at all in Republican primaries, but with the help of Trump is now his party standard bearer in this race. What happened in that race? It's really remarkable to see just how powerful Donald Trump's Twitter account is and how much he can move voters by parachuting into Tampa uh, about a month before the primary to campaign for Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis actively courted the president. He got his endorsement and he rode that wave all the way to a primary victory. And I do think it's correct that issues don't drive voters in the primary campaigns, particularly compared to characters and personalities. And, you know, Adam Putnam, the commissioner of agriculture in the state of Florida, really attacked DeSantis on, you know, saying he, this Ron DeSantis didn't understand Florida. Ron DeSantis didn't have any ideas for Florida. He had a policy-less campaign, you know, challenged him to come up with any ideas for what he would actually do for the state of Florida. But this seems to be a post-ideology Republican Party where embracing and supporting Donald Trump seems to be more important than how you feel about the free market or any other policy position you could come up with and sell to voters. Well, it's, it's kind of amazing how much Putnam and DeSantis's fates have changed in just two years. Because two years ago, Ron DeSantis, like Andrea said, was running for Senate and then very quickly got out of the race after Marco Rubio re-entered the, the race somewhat unexpectedly. And, and meanwhile, Adam Putnam was, has been this golden boy in the Florida GOP for, for years and years and years and has been telegraphing this run for governor and uh, building support for it for years and years. And yet, like you said, Trump parachutes in, sends a few complimentary tweets, does a rally, and, and Putnam gets annihilated on Election Day. I mean, it's just to me, I don't know that we've ever seen a president more powerful within his own party 
than Donald Trump is right now, at least in the modern era. I mean, it wasn't this isn't like something Barack Obama was doing in Democratic primaries. He wasn't campaigning for Alex Sink in 2010. You know, and you had some Democrats who I think complained about that under Obama, right, that Barack Obama didn't do enough to support and help build the party's uh, infrastructure down ballot and around states and do enough to support candidates. So, I, I mean, that dynamic is a little interesting, but there were definitely Republicans complaining after the election on Tuesday about how heavy handed Trump was and sort of feeling helpless to do anything in the campaign once Donald Trump in and said, you know, Ron DeSantis is my guy. Uh, In some ways, it felt a little bit like Jeb Bush versus Donald Trump in 2016. Jeb Bush uh, was the inevitable presidential candidate. Donald Trump came in and beat him in in Florida. So I, I do think being the legacy guy doesn't work quite as well as it used to in this state. Are other down-ballot campaigns in Florida voicing some concern over there? So you've got Bill Nelson on the ballot, who's sort of the antithesis of that type of candidate. What are they doing to reconfigure after this primary? On the Democratic side, there is a lot of excitement in the party in Florida about Andrew Gillum. The voting turnout uh, seems to show that maybe as much as a quarter of the turnout was from voters who weren't voting in the previous three elections. And Andrew Gillum's campaign actively targeted non-traditional voters. So there's a lot of hope from Democrats that he is turning out new voters or apathetic voters. And he's also turning out African-American voters, which uh, is good if you're Bill Nelson. He actually took a, a back seat at a, at a unity rally they had on Friday. He actively asked to, to speak before Andrew Gillum to make him the headliner because he knows that What's good for Andrew Gillum is really good for Bill Nelson. So uh, people feel better about Bill Nelson. Candidates with uh, districts with uh, large or significant African-American populations are feeling better about their chances of getting elected. Uh, On the Republican side, I think they feel good about having a Democratic opponent who is campaigning with Bernie Sanders, who they can paint as a democratic socialist as someone who's far left and Ron DeSantis is talking actively about Andrew Gillum wanting to drive the state of Florida in the exact opposite direction and and trusting that people will feel that Florida is doing well right now. I, I think on the Republican side, as we talked about, I think part of the lesson is that it's just it's more important to be in Donald Trump's good favor than it is to have money or a well-crafted policy it, I mean, it, you know, Gillum's theory of the case here that you drive out base turnout is reflective of what we see kind of br- more broadly from progressives across the country right now. That theory that, you know, what we don't have to appeal to the middle of the road, suburban, usually white voter, you know, by talking about more of a bipartisan centrist approach that you need to, to inspire people. You need to excite people. Um, and, and that means not just voting for someone who could be the, the state's first African-American governor, but someone whose policies could make a real you know, discernible difference in your life. David, you were already talking about it, though. I mean, there is conceivably some downside here. And, and how are Republicans going to take something like support for a single payer system and try to use that against Andrew Gillum and Democrats? You know, in the first day of the campaign, it got lost uh, because Ron DeSantis made an unfortunate comment about how electors, voters in the state of Florida w- would monkey this up. Let's get Congressman Ron DeSantis in his own words here on Fox News. The last thing we need to do 
is to monkey this up by trying to embrace a socialist agenda with huge tax increases and bankrupting the state. And of course, the focus, as he said that, the next three days were about racial issues uh, in the state of Florida. Is that good or bad for Democrats? I don't know. I really don't. I think it was really bad for Ron DeSantis in week one because the day two story was, you know, how did Ron DeSantis become an administrator of a nationalistic and apparently racist Facebook page, which he said he was added without his knowledge and he and he left as soon as he found out about it. And then day three was a group from out of state sending out incredibly racist robocalls that were made to sound as if Andrew Gillum was talking to voters. And so it was three days of stories um, that were injecting racism into the campaign. And Ron DeSantis kind of disappeared a little bit as Andrew Gillum did television interviews all over the place. I understand that he intends to speak to a particular part of the base to incite them. But the truth is, is I think there are a majority of us who disagree with that brand of politics. For DeSantis, it was a, a bad week one rollout, something we'll see play out over time, but it doesn't seem like it's going to go away after the first week. And so, you know, David, you have the, the racism component of that. What about the pocketbook component that I know Republicans are probably also going to be eager to talk about? Like I was asking, you know, someone supports single payer health care. What does that mean for potentially the tax bill of some of these moderate voters? Right. It's important. And I do think that that is going to resonate with people in the middle. Uh, Florida is a state that doesn't have an income tax, and people who live in Florida like that, and they don't like taxes generally. So it is going to be, with some voters in the middle, a problem for Andrew Gillum as he talks about policies that include raising taxes uh, for corporations. He says he doesn't, he won't raise taxes for everyday Americans, um, which I'm not, in, I'm not entirely sure what the exact definition of everyday Americans is for Andrew Gillum, but. Uh, that certainly leaves wiggle room for Republicans to talk about him as a tax and spin liberal, as someone who wants to take more of your working income away in order to have the government have control over it. And I do think that that's going to work with some voters in the middle. I, I don't know how many, but it, it will it will definitely resonate with some people here. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I genuinely thought that that conversation with David was really interesting because it is recapping some of the things that we have both covered happening in Florida for a long time. It's this state that is run to the middle, and it's frustrated both of their bases to the point where the big upsets are happening now at the very top of the ticket. Right, right. It's kind of the apotheosis of a lot of those trends. And I just think broadly, too, I mean, governor's races have really turned out to be really interesting uh, this cycle and really some of the starkest contrasts that we see between Republicans and Democrats are happening in places like Florida or in Georgia, which is a good segue for our next segment, actually, because we are going to talk about the Georgia gubernatorial race and about the Democratic nominee Stacey Abrams and some of the debt that she has acquired and whether or not that's a political liability or maybe a political strength at this point in our populism-inflected times. Stacey Abrams and many, many, many other candidates who have also taken on significant debt in the, before and during their campaigns this year. So our next guest, Nick Foriezos from Aussie, is in studio to talk to us about the story he wrote about candidates taking on debt in their 2018 campaigns. Nick, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Andrea. So tell us a little bit about your reporting. You are from Georgia? 
Yeah, that's right. So I'm Georgia native. I went to University of Georgia, and I also actually covered the 2014 elections, the Senate and governor races for that land general constitution. So I have some roots there. Uh, now I cover national politics for Aussie, and really my interest in the Georgia race kind of you know spurred the story about candidate debt. Essentially, you know earlier this year, Stacey Abrams, who is running to become the first African American governor, female governor in the country, running in Georgia. You know she penned a big editorial and fortune talking about how debt is a millstone that weighs down more than three quarters of Americans and how our own debt, which is $170,000 in credit card and student loan debt, plus $50,000 in deferred tax payments IRS, you know, actually humanizes her with voters. And so I went out and kind of decided, all right, you know, you're making that claim. Let's look at what the voters think. And let's also look at if your debt actually is normal when you compare it to other candidates across the country. And what Ozzy did with this piece is we actually analyzed the personal financial disclosures of 396 candidates who are running or still running uh, in the 56 most competitive congressional districts across the country. God bless y'all for doing that. <laughs> Some data journalism. There's a lot of Excel sheets for sure. Yeah, hashtag data journalism for sure. So to be clear, this story came after this was already out in the open. She wrote yeah, this op-ed yeah, yeah. to clear up the... <laughs> That's right. She she did the smart thing. Someone's saying you know, she's being very open with her audience. Some were saying that it was a very smart political move to get ahead of the story because you know, in a fiscal state like Georgia that has a lot of conservatives and conservative swing voters, you know, money management matters. And so she got ahead of it with this editorial earlier this year talking about how she had taken on that debt through a variety of reasons. She mentioned the fact that historically African-American women face bigger challenges to accessing money and also the issues that happened with that. Uh, she grew up poor in Mississippi, but also she actually mentioned the fact that she had to help and take care of her parents and uh, her niece for a while. And so family reasons were what she said was part of the reason why she had to take out that debt. And here on Beyond the Bubble, our shtick, we like to hear from what you found from voters back in Georgia so that we can bring you some feedback from the ground from the people who are going to decide these elections. What did people say about her take on this? You know, it's definitely a mix. Um, you get some small conservative business owners who are saying, you know what, like money management is really important. Georgia has a multi-billion dollar budget and she's going to have to manage that. And I think people are willing to forgive certain types of debt, right? You know, student loan debt is pretty understood to be normal in this day and age. Um, and credit card debt, you know, sometimes understandable. The one that really picked people up was the $50,000 in IRS debt, you know, owing, owing taxes to the government while running as a uh, progressive who's trying to expand government services. So you haven't paid your taxes, but at the same time, you know, you're, you're promising to expand. And, you know, they are on a payment plan for those taxes is what her campaign argues. And so they are working to pay that back. But the fact that she paid the 50000 or that she owes the $50,000 and then she also donated $50,000 to her own campaign early on has been a subject of a lot of Republican attacks on this. Regular folks I talk to, you know, a lot of them say they humanize desserts. They say, we know what it's like to have debt. In this day and age, unless you come from a background of privilege, it's hard not to have debt. The key difference of this debt, of course, is just that it's about her credit card debt is about three times the national average of a regular person. Student debt is about five times. We've got some audio of Stacey Abrams framing this for how she talks to voters about it. By anecdote, I was standing in the airport and a man walked up to me and just hugged me and said, I have student debts and my mama lives with me. And he said, you got my vote. And he walked away. Because what people see is that I have a real life. It does set up this kind of interesting debate about whether or not, particularly in these populist times, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, maybe this would have been a more difficult sell 
for people. You know, my question would be whether or not it gives voters empathy for her and make think that she's just one of them. I, you know, and I don't know. And I think Republicans certainly have merit. These attacks, they, they're probably right that there is going to be a, a, a certainly a part of the population that is worried about putting someone in charge of Georgia right. who has, has had some of these difficulties with their own personal finances. But I, I just feel like the politics of this have shifted, and I'm not sure exactly how it would play out. You know, what helps her, I guess, is this fact that she does have a, a story, a, a reason. You know, her parents struggling financially, having to support a second family during the time that she was also paying back her own student loans and debts. And so I think that will cause people to have empathy for her for sure. And a lot of the younger people I talked to specifically did not seem to have as much of a problem with it. We've had guests on the show who were uh, in charge of Democratic recruiting this cycle who talked about the idea of um, people bringing their problems to the table and saying, I have this in my background. I don't know if I can run. And they're saying, if Trump can do it, you can do it too. This must be one of the first thing that comes up if you are like a self-opposition researcher would be personal finances of a candidate, right? That's right. And, you know, it's definitely something that people are going to attack her for. But there is, we do live in this politics of nothing matters anymore, right? And I think people are looking for figureheads uh, who can be emblematic of an idea uh, rather than necessarily the particular problems that they might have. You look at Donald Trump and, you know, as one of my sources told me, the grand irony is that you have him here, someone who had, you know, declared bankruptcy six times and for all intents and purposes still deeply in debt of hundreds of millions of dollars. But people don't view that as a liability because he did it as a businessman through businesses rather than through his own personal finances. And when you bring it down to the individual, that's when human nature gets this highly judgmental feel. Well, there's there's an interesting, I think, side debate about some of the politics of this with the, the student loan portion. You That's mentioned right. that she had had a lot of student loan debt when we've heard Democrats talk several election cycles now about trying to relieve the debt. I actually spent time with a candidate in Delaware who wants to get rid of all of the student debt, uh, basically um, uh, abolish debt, if, if you will. And that's a fairly radical position. But this, what are some of the politics of those kind of proposals in Georgia? I mean, is this something that you know, can can finally inspire the, the, the much ballyhooed fabled youth vote in a state like that? Or is, is there something tricky about that, too? When there's so much fire going on, right, it's hard to think of anyone smokering as being super important. But so I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that student loan debt is going to drive people to the That's polls, a good right? analogy. I don't think I've ever heard. I've, I've heard a lot of political analogies before, but I don't think I've heard that when there's a lot, you know, a single smoke ring. And then a lot we of all fire. have our moments of glory. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Not bad. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, it's something that's definitely going to be part of the larger picture and part of the discussion. And to have someone who's sympathetic to the plight of, you know, a regular working class family, especially in a place like Georgia, where the state schools have become almost impossible to get into because it's so competitive. And, and actually, some Republicans are aware, too, that it might be a losing battle to critique her, her money woes here. Uh, Senator Josh McCoon, who by no means is a tepid conservative, he's, he's been known as someone who will be pretty out there out front. But he warned fellow conservatives to lay off of this issue. He said the party had excused Republican candidates who got behind the eight ball before while helping family members. He also said, people already see us as the party of rich people. Why play into that stereotype by appearing disconnected from the plight of everyday folks? That's that's the danger. But then again, I had Carl Rove telling me that, uh, you know, she says she can sympathize with the problems of families, but not paying for your taxes. Most people can't get away with that. So it's mixed even among Republicans. Is anyone taking this in a direction of campaign finance reform? If you're taking out loans to fund your campaign, things are not well in like the, the way campaigns are run? Yeah, it's definitely a discussion. I've heard, you know, I haven't seen a ton of movement on that, but campaign finance reform is kind of a black hole usually anyway. So, 
So this is one of our ground game series of races between Ozzy and McClatchy, of course. So Nick, if you could, I mean, what does the, the big picture look at this race? Because it is one that is attracting national attention, of course. Do, do people have a sense of whether the Republican Brian Kemp or Abrams are, are favorite at this point? You know, in a conservative state like Georgia, you kind of have house money, I think, with the with the Republican side. Uh, Georgia hasn't really gone Republican in, st- in these statewide races for a while. But that being said, Abrams does have some momentum. Uh, she did release some internal polls, which take it for what we will, the it's candidate right. ran them, right. saying that she would be uh, the winner in a one-on-one with Kemp. Other ones have her within the margin uh, of difference there. But that being said... It's kind of there's been this liberal pipe dream for a while, and you know we'll see. I, I remember when I interviewed Stacey Abrams at one point last year, and she seemed like a woman to be very comfortable with pie charts and PowerPoint presentations she and loves graphs of pie all charts. kinds. Yes, she, she usually carries them with her wherever she goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Nick. Thanks for having me. For a couple of campaign reporters, what Nick's talking about is something that we have heard in the past with Republican candidates who are in a party that, that prides themselves on fiscal responsibility, but not really something that we often hear about when it comes to Democrats. That's right. And, you know, the Democrats seem to be embracing this idea that, hey, we are for the people, we are of the people, and we have the problems <laughs> of the people. <laughs> Which is a stark contrast to, say, like Senator Cruz's uh, 2015 presidential bid where opponents used his Goldman Sachs loans to attack him for it. Right. I, I would really question whether or not that would be a liability in the twenty in a twenty twenty or I guess twenty twenty four Republican primary as that party also shifts and becomes more and more populist. So that is as good an opportunity as any to move on to the next segment. It's the lightning round, where Andrea and I have thirty seconds and only just thirty seconds to tell you, the listener, something new and interesting you maybe don't know going on in the world of politics. Andrea. No pressure. Let's go. You first, Alex. <laughs> I'm first? I thought you were going first. I think you you set this up. Okay. I set it up. I'll go first. Okay. I was in Delaware yesterday spending time with Carrie Evelyn Harris. She is the progressive challenger to Democratic Senate incumbent Tom Carper. Look, she is a big underdog for the primary happening Thursday, but you have to think that her movement, what she represents, the progressive activist wing of the party, is here to stay, not just beyond one election. We'll have to see how she does on Thursday. How did I do? Did I get into 30 seconds? I forgot to time you. <laughs> we're, uh, we're running a, a tight ship here, folks. This is, this is Jordan Wing. I can say that you came under 30 seconds. Did I? Sure. Okay. Okay. That's, that's all I need here. Andrea, rest assured, I am not going to forget to time you. So no pressure. I'm actually going to show you how much time you have left. Three, two, one, go. All right. I am just returning from Texas where... Uh, Bitter work yard signs have blanketed the Fort Worth suburbs um, to the chagrin of Ted Cruz's supporters who say that they want their yard signs at multiple town halls. Uh, he was accosted by supporters who want to know where they are. Where are they? His campaign manager doesn't like them, says that they're a waste of money, says my coworker sitting next to me at the Star Telegram. But Cruz had yard signs in 2010 and 2012. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. I would actually point out that there was a paper released that showed yard signs actually do affect the vote um, and, and do drive up turnout. And I would point out there was some reporter, Andrew, can you help me out, who wrote a story earlier this year about oh, how important yard signs were to the Alabama Senate race. I can't remember his name, but it was awfully prescient. The silence of eye rolls is deafening. Yes. <laughs> um, amid the silent eye rolling, Andrea, it has been a pleasure hosting the show with you yet again. Good to be back. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners, 
We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.